Hi, welcome to Skip's Corner, where I cover Nashville's baseball history and events and introduce you to players, coaches, and other fans. One of the most fun people to be around in my lifetime was Farrell Owens. Farrell was the first general manager of the Nashville Sounds, was one of the great baseball minds, I think, of Nashville of all time because he kept up with the game. He loved the game. He loved his Cone High School playing days, amateur baseball playing days, Lipscomb. He just he just loved it all. And through his baseball knowledge and love of the game, he made so many friends, it would be hard to number them. And I'm glad to have been one of them. I always would hear from him from time to time. He had a couple of passes to get into minor league baseball games because of his career in minor league baseball, and he would call up and say, hey, let's go to the game tonight, and we'd go down to Nashville Sounds game. A lot of times we'd sit and watch the game, but most often we would walk around and say hello to fans and friends and sometimes a former player or two, and that was just a great thrill for me. Farrell was top-notch. Sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago, November the 20th, 2020, and I'll tell you, I miss him. I miss not only those calls going to lunch at a meet and three, or even pulling up in a Sonic and having a hamburger. He was just one of those guys. It was fun to be around. I'm not the only one that enjoyed that time of fellowship with him. But I'll tell you, I think he was one of the best. And I interviewed him on the very first podcast that I ever did two years ago. And the audio is not great, but he was sitting in his home on his computer, which he told me was old. And we lose a little bit of the sound. I'm not the greatest on audio either. It wasn't for my nephew, David Nipper. These things would never sound as good as they do. But anyway, I just want you to listen to this recorded from two years ago. It's good to hear Farrell's voice again. Good morning, Farrell Owens. How are you today? Good morning, Skip Nipper. Glad to be with you. Well, this is the inaugural version of Skip's Corner, but I wanted you to be the first one to be a part of this, and I'm grateful that you would join me. Well, thank you. This is my first Zoom experience, so hold on to your hat. (laughs) Well, you'll do great. You know, this is kind of like sitting like you and I have had conversations over a meal, and that's what this is, except there's no meal. Maybe down the road there will be, but right now there's no meal. You promised me a cheeseburger. I'll 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 make sure that I give buy you a cheeseburger. <laughs> I want to talk to you a little bit about your life and your history. I know you're a great sports fan, but as it pertains to baseball, I know that your baseball interest began with your family. Can you tell me a little bit about what you knew, what you know about baseball, what you knew about baseball in your youth? I, I moved here from Oklahoma when I was ten years old. I had lived here up till age five, but don't remember much about that. Started my classmates were playing baseball, so I started playing, and I went out for the team. I was an eleven-year-old junior knot hole, and I didn't make the team, and I was so devastated. And my dad saw how hurt I was, so he took me to a um, army surplus store and bought me a first baseman's mitt. I think they call them pads now, first baseman pad. And we played all summer long, my dad and I, throwing and hitting and running. And when I went out for the team the next year, I made the team, was an integral part of it, and we were runner uh, I went to the semifinals of the city tournament. 
And uh, I've just been crazy, love it, never could get enough of it. And then lo and behold, after playing college ball and, and summer ball, eventually wound up involved with the Nashville Sounds Pro Team. It's been quite a ride. But in between that, you have a long career also that started obviously with your youth, ended with the Nashville Sounds, actually didn't end with the Nashville Sounds. It ended with where we are today with the Old Timers Baseball Association. You've been a valuable member. I call you the eyes and ears of Old Timers Baseball. But what about when you went to, what high school did you go to? Okay, I went to Cone High School and from there to uh, Lipscomb, David Lipscomb College, which is now Lipscomb University. Just always playing baseball. That's where all my friends were. I told somebody the other day, you take baseball out of my life, I'd be a miser. I wouldn't know anybody. I'd be homeless. So I just always been around baseball. And then after college, when I didn't get a chance to play professionally, I wound up playing uh, summer league baseball uh, up until I was 28 years old. And then I started managing a team. Of course, along the way, I was also a head baseball coach at Pearl High School. And so I was doing both. I still couldn't get enough of it. In fact, I guess I'd probably still be doing it. But the professional opportunity came along. And uh, I got involved with that. And that finished my Sandlot, you know, my summer baseball career. But just a lot of fun. Picked up a lot of lot of, lot of, of friends over the years. Now, you played Tri-State League, which has been gone for some time. Did you play Leary Gilbert League also? I played in the summertime when I was in high school, my junior and senior year. I played in the Larry Gilbert League one summer after my junior year, the summer of 62, I played in the Larry Gilbert League and American Legion post five. So I was playing all summer and I had played six not hole up before that. And then when I got into at Lipscomb, then during the summers, I was playing in the city league and then later the tri-state league. And I, I had some success there. And I guess because of that, it made me just love it even more. And I just continue to play and, and, and develop friendships and camaraderie and teamwork. And it's just been a, a fantastic ride. I got a lot of strawberries on my rear end and got my teeth knocked in one day, sliding into second base and tore my knee up one summer. And But I'd probably, I guess I'd do it all again. Sure. Uh, skip my dog again. I'm sure I'd, I'd jump right in there. Now, the Larry Gilbert League was for high school boys. You couldn't be going into your senior year, as I remember. And then City League was just kind of an open class, wasn't it? Yeah. If you were 17 years old and good enough for the City League or Tri-State League, you could play. But that was a very rare thing. Yeah. But there were a lot of ex-pros, uh, a lot of 28, 29, 30, even some 35, 36-year-old guys. A lot of Nashville balls after they finished their careers here. They stay around and play amateur baseball. Were players paid in the Tri-State League? Not supposed to be. Yeah. Not supposed to be. <laughs> I remember my dad saying – Playing city league ball, somebody in can't remember Huntsville or Ardmore, or someone called him, wanted to know if he'd come down and play a series for twenty dollars or twenty five dollars. I know that that wasn't supposed to happen, but I'm sure players took the cash if they could get it in those days. Twenty dollars was a happened, lot of money back then. All the time, you know, you're not supposed to gamble on a golf course either. You know. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's right. Well, I wouldn't do that. I don't play golf, so I wouldn't even gamble on anybody else. <laughs> now, the Tri-State League, you, did you manage in City League also or just the Tri-State League? I played in the City League one year after my freshman year at uh, Lipscomb, and I was over my head. And that was summer of 64. Summer of 1965, I went to the Tri-State League, which at that time was a 
secondary league. It was for the younger younger guys still trying to develop their skills. So I, I went back down after my sophomore year in college. I went to the Tri-State League and really regained my confidence. And then, lo and behold, what happened after the 65 season, the City League, and I'm not sure what happened, but they folded. So the Tri-State League then became the Premier League. And so I couldn't go back to City League because there wasn't a City League per se. So, But it was all the same. It called different, but it was summer baseball for the older age groups and the ex-pros now were playing in the Tri-State League, and it just, you know, it really didn't miss a beat. Could, could you name some of those uh, former pros, like from the National Vols or somewhere else? Oscar Shanique and Joe Stupak come to my mind. Larry Taylor played with Hester Battery. He was a former Vol, still lives in Nashville. Yeah. Let's see, the Vol players that played, I say, okay, I've named those three. Uh, Gene Host, who also played in the big leagues. Played briefly in the Tri-State League. There were several other just pros. Uh, Bobby Wiesnover, who played in the Dodger chain. Ralph Blinn. There were just several, several ex-pros that you put me on the spot, and I'm trying, but my brain's freaking yeah. up. I read an article the other day where Larry Taylor was playing one game, and then he was headed down to Rome, Georgia, I think, where he'd taken the, maybe the basketball job first as the head coach of Barry College. Became the baseball coach. Yeah, later. he was named the head head basketball and baseball coach at Barry. Yeah. And he went down, accepted the job, and did some things. And then he came back, and he finished the season. And I think he played one game in the state tournament, but they said, you got to get down here because school was starting. You know, he had to be there to meet his team when they got there. And I believe he played maybe in the state, but maybe just one game in the region. But they had a hard time replacing him. Terry Beasley is another former pro. Just a lot of pros, Jimmy Ferguson. Tell me about going to the state tournament. Was that Stan Musial ball and then going to the national? Yeah. In 1967, after my junior year in college, I was playing with Corsi's Barbecue, and we won the local league, regular season, tri-state league. We went to the state, which was in Chattanooga, and we won there. We went down to Graceville, Alabama, near Birmingham, and we won there. Came out of the loser's bracket and won there. So we won our trip to Battle Creek, and uh, we went up there. We won, beat the host team in front of a, just a huge crowd. I still remember to this day when I went to center field and turned around, that's when it dawned on me when I saw the crowd. I took a deep breath. I'd never played in front of a crowd that big, and we beat them. Then the next day, we were playing the team out of Chicago. That was the eventual. They won it, and they were coming out of the loser's bracket, too, as well. And we had them six to one. We were on a roll and we came apart. They beat us eight to seven and we came home. But well, what an experience. Greatest team I ever played on. Great guys, too. We had. Now, you, uh, now you still like drive up there every year, don't you? Battle Creek? I go up there a lot. I've been, I've been back to Battle Creek a dozen times. It's fun to sit there and watch those teams where you're not all concerned about who's, who might win or lose. You can sit there and watch, watch all the stress on everybody else and watch some great games. I've been back at least a dozen times. Have you ever stood out there in that same spot you were standing when you admired the crowd? Absolutely. I did that maybe five or six years ago. I went out. I asked the uh, groundskeepers. They said home plate. Nothing had been changed on the dimensions. And I went out, and I stood what I thought was had to be almost the very exact place. And I remember saying to myself, in this big old universe right now, I'm back to where I was 40-something years ago. Of course, now it's been – 
53 years. Yes, I went back to that very spot stood out there. That's what we Some of the guys working out there. Who is that fellow out there standing out there in the middle of the field? <laughs> well, I, from my own experience, I remember my first visit to Ripwood Field in Birmingham. You know, it was built in 1910, still stands, and it's still in use. And probably as remembered for the Birmingham Black Barons as it is for the Birmingham Barons. But the first time I was there, Clarence Watkins is a dear friend. He's kind of the curator there at Rickwood Field, a member of the Friends of Rickwood that keeps that field going. And I said, isn't this where Willie Mays played? And he said, yeah, when he was a kid for the Birmingham Black Barons. And so guess where I went and stood? I went and stood in center field. Oh, boy. And thought about what Willie Mays saw the first time that he walked out there. I know you said you were coaching at Pearl. Somehow Larry Schmidt made contact with you. And tell me about that dream and how you were involved with the Nashville Sounds. Well, I had gone on a recruiting trip with Larry. Larry and I went to the same high school. I was in the seventh grade when he was a senior, but we played a lot. He was still involved in summer ball, and of course I was, so our paths crossed all the time. So I knew him well. He knew me well. In the summer of 1976, I had a friend of mine said, hey, I saw Larry Smitho today at the barbershop, and he's talking about bringing professional baseball back to Nashville. I said, wow, that's interesting. So I called him, and I wasn't being very humble, but I said, if anybody can do it, the two of us can. And we talked briefly, maybe a week went by, and I was at a high school football game somewhere in Nashville. It was supposed to be the big game, and there I was, and there was Larry. So we started talking again, and he said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I told him. I was actually going to be at the Babe Ruth field to meet a friend of mine. We'd be the only ones there. I was wanting to do some real estate. So we go down there that Saturday morning, and uh, we're up there, and all of a sudden we see this little Volkswagen that he was driving, came riding in the gate at the Babe Ruth Park. We wonder who in the world is that? And one long, here comes this lumbering person up the steps, and then walked Larry Smitto. So we quit talking real estate, started talking baseball, and he asked me would I come to his house that afternoon. And I said, sure, we'll talk some more. And I guess, Skip, from that point on, we talked for – I don't know that we probably maybe 30, 35 straight days without missing a day where I would just go to his house and we would sit down and we would talk. Well, this wouldn't work because, well, this would work if this happened and this happened and we just talked and talked and talked, you know, it it happened. Tell me about going to the winter meetings because that was really what you, I know you had to get investors, but you had to really find out if it was even going to be a worthwhile project, right? Well, we kept talking and we got into the 1st of November, and I don't know, I think Larry found out about this seminar that they were having in Los Angeles, which is basically the winter meetings, but I don't know that we knew that's exactly what it was. It was just the baseball winter meetings. So we flew out to L.A., and we went to the seminars, went to all the meetings, and met a lot of people. Of course, this was before cell phones and fax and, and the different things that we have now. So I wrote notes. And I went to every general manager in the hotel and slid notes up underneath their door and says, I'll be in my room such and such time. Will you please call? We're trying to get a bring professional baseball back to Nashville, Tennessee. Well, I'm in my room. I did get a call. Sheldon Chief Bender, the Cincinnati Reds, he said he would he would like to talk to us. Uh, unbeknownst to us at the time, there I hadn't thought about it, their double-A team was in Three Rivers, Canada. And they were wanting to get out of Canada. So we set up a time we would meet in the lobby. 
and there was a Hertz rental car office. And I will never forget when he walked up, Larry was standing there, and I introduced myself, and I said, I appreciate you getting back with me. I said, would you step in my office? And we laughed. <laughs> in the Hertz rental car office, we sat down. Larry got out the drawings that we had, very sketchy renderings, and uh, he looked them over, and we talked and talked and talked, and he said, I wish y'all would get me back with me when you get a little further down. I think we would love to come to Nashville. He said, I, I certainly wouldn't want it to get out right now because we would have another year to play in Three Rivers. We said, that's, that's fine, but we're glad to know that you're interested. We'll get back with you shortly and let you know how we're progressing. Well, now, wow, we've got a big league connection with Cincinnati Reds. Wow, close to home. Fans like Cincinnati, you know, couldn't be any better than that. So we get home, and boy, we went through a rough winter. Uh, but we're, you know, walking through the snow. And of course, I was still teaching school, but to get snow days, so I was able to get out. I'd say by the end of January, we were pretty sure we were going to do it. And Sheldon Chief Bender, who, who was the farm director for Cincinnati, he said, we're going to make a move. We're going to come to your place. So we just kept on keeping on, and I'd say the next month, Larry was on a recruiting trip. Uh, no, he was on a trip. He was coaching ba- baseball at Vanderbilt, and he, he was out of town playing when we got the call that the Greer family was going to give us uh, a lot of money. We named it after their father, Herschel Greer. So, yeah, yeah, that was a lot of money. Uh, right at $60,000. Oh, my goodness. You're talking about 1977? That's a lot of money. A lot of money today. So we had some money, and, and then right after that, we knew we needed some more money. So that's when we started selling ownerships, got enough money to get off the ground, so to speak. But who was the key investor in that group? Well, when Conway Twitty, I'm, I'll just be honest with you, it was uh, 300000 is what we needed. So we broke it up in shares of five. So if somebody owned 5%, they had to put up $15,000. Conway bought 20%. So he gave us $60,000. Now we're on a roll. Uh, Walter Nipper with the National Sporting Goods, he took 10%. The Reese Smith family took 10%. We we were on a roll. Several other folks that I knew in town, like uh, Billy Griggs, Gene Smith, Jimmy Miller, Bob Elliott, they all jumped in at 5%. And pretty soon we had 100%. Jerry Reed came on board, Cal Smith, uh, the guy that uh, wrote Country Bumpkin, or actually sang Country Bumpkin. Ellie White, a songwriter. I think Conway just told them they had to do it. And uh, but we had 100%. We had another $300,000. And what Lynn Greer's family gave us, Herschel Greer's family gave us, we had enough money to at least break ground. And in September of 77, we put a shovel in the dirt and we took off. Unbeknownst to us, we was going to have then what we thought was the worst winter ever. Then had another just horrible winter. But we, we just kept on moving, just kept on moving. I'm going to save the rest of that story to another time because I know it takes a little bit longer to get to from the time that you put the shovel in the ground the first time until the opening night. The crowd was great. And from then, the story continues on today, actually. A lot of people don't know that Herschel Greer was actually head of a committee to save the Nashville Vols in 1959 with a couple of other people that got involved like Eddie Arnold and Cleo Miller and Harold Shire. And so he had a baseball history with Nashville also. So he, I, I read once where in 1950 or 51, he actually made overtures to buy a portion of the Nashville Vols 
himself or he and his family. Farrell, kind of close this out a little bit because we're running out of time. I want you to tell me you have a great part in baseball lore that not too many people have. You remember telling me about this one time? You made a play from center field. Tell me about that play. And tell me where tell me where you were and the circumstances. We were playing um, out at Lipscomb. This was in spring, May 1st, I believe. We were playing Belmont in a big game at Belmont. They had runners at first and third, one out. And the batter had a loop and line drive, if that's possible. And runner third, side hit, tag, and score. But the runner first thought it was going to fall in there. I dove for the ball, and I caught it. Nine times out of ten, it would have fell out of my glove, but somehow it stuck. But when I when I hit the ground and rolled and came up, I had my momentum going. And my first baseman, Tom Edging, he had gone for the cutoff to the plate. There wasn't anybody at first, and I just kept running to first. And the runner that had been on first, he was trying to get turned around, and I caught him right before he got there and tagged him, and I just – Pitched the ball back to the mound. Didn't think much about it at the time, except my teammates and my coach was going crazy. Well, that night, somehow it got on the uh, AP wire, and I made national news. I'm the first person from David Lipscomb College to ever make national news. It went out all over over the United States on the AP, just national outfielder, turns unassisted double play, and it stuck with me. Uh, As a center fielder. It was a double play. It's just that it was unusual because of, of me being an outfielder. You being a center fielder. Yeah, that's a great story. Well, Farrell, I'm going to wrap this up. I really enjoy talking to you. You know, we have great conversations at other times, and we'll continue those too when this uh, when we don't have to sequester any, any longer, or at least we can get out a little bit. So I want to thank you. It's always a pleasure. I love being with you. I love hearing your stories. And I'm grateful that you would join me on Skip's Corner this morning. It's been my pleasure. I've been happy, just happy to be on the inaugural uh, edition of Skip's Corner. That's great. Well, maybe inaugural, maybe a trial. We'll just see. This one may go into the annals of nothing. <laughs> we'll just have to play it by ear. There are others making that decision for me. So anyway, we'll see how it goes. And I'm grateful. Thank you, Farrell. I'll talk to you. Thank you, Skip. Have a great day. Well, there you have it. Wasn't it good to hear Farrell's voice again? I uh, I just, uh, you know, the good Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, and he took away a good one. And I can't believe that he's not tossing the ball around with some of his baseball friends in heaven, because I'll tell you, that's where he is. If you enjoy these kind of podcasts, certainly would you mind letting me know by sending me an email at 262downright at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Skip's Corner on Twitter or LinkedIn and on Facebook also. I'd love to hear from you. Just give me a message and I'll follow up with you from there. As always, I'm grateful that you would listen in and I hope you'll do it again soon. This is my tribute to Farrell Owens and I'm grateful that I enjoyed his friendship and I still love him very much.